going to be reading uh, Psalm 106. It's on page 430 of the Black Bibles. Um, Psalm 106, 1 to 14. Verse 1. Praise the Lord and give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord, or for fully declare his praise? Blessed are they who maintain justice, who constantly do what is right. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favour to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. We have sinned, even as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your kindness, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them from then for his namesake, to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up. He led them through the depths, of, uh, the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe and the hand of the enemy who redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. But they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his counsel. In the desert they gave into their craving. In the wasteland uh, they put God to the test. Good morning. The second reading is um, from Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32 and ending at chapter 5, verse 21. That's on page 773. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. 
Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more women and men believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick onto the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, and they, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nat. Let me uh, again welcome you. If uh, you are new or visiting, we're, we're picking up in the book of Acts. And so uh, where Natalie just read to us is where you want to have open. Acts is an exciting book. We're, we're watching uh, the good news of Jesus. Yes, start localised in Jerusalem, but uh, as Jesus requested and commanded, spreading throughout the whole world, an activity that even we today are involved in uh, by God's Spirit. And so let's pray that God might uh, encourage us powerfully with his word, that we might live for him. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for preserving it for our benefit and speaking to us through it by your spirit. Uh, This morning, Father, speak to us. Uh, Take away the distractions and the blockages that make it hard to hear, whether it's the the heat, whether it's the uh, things of the week that are in our mind, whether it's the sin that weighs us down. Uh, Father, relieve them from us that we might hear your word. And Father, we pray that In hearing your word, we might be changed in such a way that we please and honour you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was chatting to uh, someone earlier in the week uh, about how you choose a church. Thinking through that kind of issue at the moment, he really helpfully said how you wouldn't go to a church that didn't preach the truth. That was the key. He's absolutely right. You know, the, the, the mark of a true church has to be faithfulness to the gospel message. You know, we're working our way through Acts uh, and the, in the early stages of church and it's, it's built on clarity about Jesus, clear proclamation. Um, we're, we're only four chapters in uh, and already we've had a speech from Jesus and three speeches from Peter. You know, there's lots of clear speeches and teaching about Jesus. It's essential. Uh, as we, uh, we just finished that reading, uh, Peter got released by the angel in 5 verse 21 uh, or verse 20 that he might go and tell the people the full message of this new life. You know, clear teaching about the Lord Jesus is an essential mark of a real and true church. Because uh, Peter gets up and does it. If, if you skip a little later, 5 verse 30, he stands up and says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him to his right, own right hand as prince and saviour that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And we are witnesses of these things, 
And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Yeah. Peter stand up and give this really clear, you know, kind of like a, a five-point gospel explanation. You know, so point one, Jesus was killed on a tree. That is, he, he, he bore our sins, he bore the wrath of God. The significance of the tree is that he takes the curse of God upon him. You know, second point, that you know, Jesus was raised. You know, the Father saw Jesus' sinless perfection, that, that death could not hold him, and so he had to be released. Third, he says Jesus is now raised as a saviour. That is, Jesus is alive and well. He sits enthroned. He rules over all. That has implications. His fourth point, he gives repentance and forgiveness. That is, Jesus uh, takes that once-for-all work he's done and, and, and applies it to the individual, bringing about repentance and forgiveness in them. And finally, Peter says, well, that's the ongoing role then of himself, but also the Holy Spirit, to bear witness to that to speak about the truth of Jesus, to make him known. Yeah, a, a true church is marked by clear preaching. Must have that. But is a five-point summary all we need? Is it just the sign of a true church? It's telling me, my friend, I, I got thinking more about what other signs you look for for a healthy church. That there has to be something more than just that the gospel is preached, but rather there are signs that it's been received and impacted and delighted in. That's a healthy church. You know, Australia's recently uh, experienced floods and cyclones, life-changing events, and though they've subsided, uh, there's evidence left in their wake that they've been there. You know, in, in a positive sense and for good, uh, the gospel overturns this world order, but it has to leave evidence not just simply be told and left out there. It has to impact. So Acts is not just interested in giving a clear presentation of Jesus. If it was, Luke could have written one of those five-point summaries like I just gave you, just kind of summarised the speeches of Peter and said, all right, here it is, publish it, everyone can sign it and we can stick it on the wall. No, 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 there's more to it. Acts wants us to see there's more to it, that, that the gospel, the news of Jesus, when it sweeps through, leaves evidence. A good church doesn't just proclaim Christ. It bears the mark of responding to it. So what is it that you are looking for in a church? What is it you're hoping our church will be like? How how should we as a church and a group of people be different because we've heard of Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension? See, conversion and community always go together. And two marks of a community impacted by the gospel just from this reading there's more you could do but just two points for us this morning two two words for us to remember united and fearful united and fearful first a community shaped by the gospel is united picking up at the end of chapter 4 verse 31 where we picked up the reading they were all filled with the holy spirit they spoke spoke the word of god boldly And all the believers were one in heart and mind. They are united, both in heart and mind. More literally, um, it's heart and soul. It picks up that language of complete commitment. You know, the way when God asks people to love him with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. It's everything. It's all in. It's not holding anything back. Uh, As we see in verse verse 32 to verse 34, their their unity, though, is not just about membership in a club that, you know, they've got a card that they can carry around. No, no. It's common purpose in action. It's unity in action. 
You know, at first, they're, they're united in action to speak about Jesus. In verse 31, they boldly speak of him. Verse 33, again, they testify to the risen Jesus. Together, they boldly talk to others. They share what they know of Christ. They are united in action. But the other plank of their unity is the way they care for the weakest. The unity is in how they're concerned for every individual's welfare. In verse 32, they've got this this new approach, this new way of thinking about both people and possessions. Luke is really careful the way he words it. He says, no one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared. You know, he's careful to say they're not forced to hand over their property. It's, it's still their own. But there's this radical change of heart that meant they're so concerned for the welfare of others that, that they stop laying claim to it as though it's their own. Instead, they find ways to share. So in verse 34, there's not a needy person amongst them. And what we're seeing here is the, the fulfilment of a promise God had made in Deuteronomy 15.4 that there would be no poor among God's people, none in need. You know, there's no one in need because people are so profoundly united by this message of Christ that, that willingly they just hand their wealth over to meet the needs of others. So in verse 33 again, uh, what are people? people are selling houses, selling land, and they come and they bring the proceeds to the disciples' feet. Uh, in part, they're, they're acknowledging that the apostles have authority uh, and they're recognising that. But, but more powerfully, it's, it's showing that they are willingly and legally giving away their wealth to meet other people's needs. It's a voluntary submission. It's not compulsory. You don't have to do it. But, you know, individual choice still matters. And so we're told the example of Joseph uh, in verse 36, better known as Barnabas. Uh, he's an outsider from Cyprus, but, but he sells a field that belongs to him. We don't know. Maybe he had many fields. Uh, maybe this was it. Either way, it's a massive and costly act of generosity. And he willingly goes and he puts it at the apostles' feet. So the mark of a church impacted by the gospel is its unity in action. It's true of churches even today. You know, we, we don't just speak of Jesus and present and go, great, we've done our job. No, 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 we are impacted by him. And all should see it by the way that we are united. You know, I don't mean simply that there's an absence of conflict. You know, just because there isn't the kind of fisticuffs that uh, Robin was warning us about in the kids' talk over morning tea and fights over Tim Tams, that's not the sign that we've responded to the gospel. That's possibly a sign we're just polite. No, no, no. It's not just about affiliation. You know, you're not united and impacted by the gospel just because you can come and sit through a service each week. True gospel unity is purposeful action. That, that together we are committed to proclaiming Jesus. So when Paul, the apostle, prays for the Roman church and for their unity, this is how he prays from, from Romans 15. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity amongst yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's he praying for? He's not praying that they, they wouldn't have conflict. He's not praying that they'd have excellent quality membership courses. No, no, he's praying that they would be united and it would be evident in the fact that with one heart and one mouth they get on with the business of praising God and glorifying him and making Jesus known. I've had the, the great privilege of uh, being around Christian circles all my life. 
Uh, I understand I went to my first service about two weeks old, a bit under. Uh, And aside from illness, I can't remember ever missing a Sunday. I've also had the great privilege of being involved in a a variety of mission groups, uh, Scripture Union Family Missions, uh, if you don't know what they are, basically they're a, they're a chance you go away with a bunch of other Christians from, from different churches, go to a holiday destination, and you try and run uh, some, some programs, some fun activities that will be attractive for people who are kind of a little bored with just going down to the beach. And they'll come and they'll have fun, but they'll also get the chance to hear about Jesus. And all this, what I've noticed is uh, the different quality in relationships in normal church to mission groups. So in church, you actually spend more time with each other. Uh, you've often shared, I suppose, life over a longer period. You, you, you've probably discussed more theology. You've probably been in a Bible study group with people, and so you've talked about that sort of thing. And yet, uh, the sense of unity is often stronger in a beach mission, where you don't know people as well. Uh, you haven't known them for very long. In fact, you kind of join a team, and you're in it for a couple of years, and then, you, then you're not. It, it's kind of a short relationship. Um, even the, the, the kind of theological nuances just get put aside because you're too busy getting on with telling people about Jesus to worry about the intricacies of what do you think of verse 8? You know, no, you just get on with it. There's this powerful sense of unity. And that's the model of Acts and the prayer of Paul. You know, true unity isn't passive. It's about active common purpose. Now, I've heard people complain about, for example, you know, lack of men's ministry. You know, and they feel disconnected. The solution is not, let's run more events for men in church to socialise and talk with each other. No, no, no. The solution is men taking the chance to get in and do gospel ministry with other men. In our Connect group this year, we've appointed someone to, to think through how we can make our group a blessing to the broader community so that we're not just existing for ourselves. And actually, I expect if we do it well, we'll be a more united group because of it. Now, it doesn't mean we're all doing the same thing. I'm, I'm aware that, um, that the Tuesday morning uh, Women's Connect groups are committed to supporting the work of playtime. Now, not all of them can go there. Uh, and so some of them, yep, some will go, but others will, will help, you know, they can prepare crafts. Uh, they can go along and, and drop off some morning tea. They, you know, other people come in and help doing... There are different ways of being united, but, but unity won't come from, you know, in-principle agreement. It'll come from practical action. In part, practical action to proclaim Jesus, but more than that, the mark of a church that actually has been impacted by the gospel is that it will be marked with courageous generosity. Any church's credibility hinges on its care for the weakest member. Our credibility depends on how well our weakest are provided for. In Acts 4.34, there wasn't a needy person amongst them. You know, it wasn't just that a few wealthy skimmed from their excess. It wasn't just because you know, they paid the staff's wages and they could get on with it. No, no, it was sacrificial giving to meet the physical needs of the poor amongst them. As Ambrose said in the 4th century, uh, to a church leadership who beautified their buildings at the expense of serving the poor, uh, he said, a slave redeemed at the church's expense is a far better decoration for the Holy Communion table than a golden chalice. What makes our church beautiful is the way we care for the poor. Our credibility as a church is in our care for the weakest. That's why I'm so encouraged when I see meal rosters happen here for families with a newborn, because at that stage, weakest member in our community is that newborn. Likewise, all the time, I'm seeing meals made for those who are sick or those who are in need in our community. 
You know, I see people in our church giving away furniture to help those who need it. I know there are those who house others who are without a safe home. You know, we, we do have a lot of possessions, but the gospel impacts us to not lay claim on them for ourselves. Often I, the challenge for us, I suppose, is how society is structured. Often it's structured in such a way that economically rich Christians end up in different churches to the economically poor ones. Not always and not completely, but it happens a lot, you know. But a church impacted by the gospel will, will find ways to go beyond that, won't we? As uh, a church in, in rural Australia, country Australia, uh, a country town that I know of, um, in, in the 70s they decided that they would get buy two houses and house some refugee families, uh, boat people from Cambodia. And I kind of go, there is a church who is creative in expressing unity and generosity. You know, finding ways to give away their wealth so there'd be none in need. So the first mark of us being impacted by the gospel, of us being a healthy church, is that we are united in proclaiming him, united in caring for those in need. The second feature is that, is that a fear. A community shaped by the gospel is fearful. Not fearful of people, don't, don't get that wrong. Uh, in Acts, there are religious leaders who, who've gotten Jesus murdered uh, and they've commanded now Peter to be silent about speaking of Jesus and yet the believers prayed for boldness, they prayed for courage, they were given it in 4 verse 31. In face of opposition, they just kept speaking the word of God boldly. Uh, in 5.14, you, you look down and you see more and more people are added to their number but, but as we read in, in before in 5.17, out of jealousy... The high priest had them locked up. As the story goes on, an angel releases Peter to preach in the temple. And so when the council, this jury, come together to try Peter for speaking about Jesus, the egg is on their face because the guy they thought was locked up comfortably away is actually out there again talking about this Jesus. And as Peter makes clear to them in 5 verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. You know, that's the fear of a true gospel community. They are marked by, and we are marked by, the fear of God. At the start of Acts 5, in contrast to Barnabas, we meet Ananias and Sapphira. With full complicity from his wife, Ananias lays this portion of property, a portion of the property sale at the disciples' feet. At one level, it seems like yeah, crime might be embezzlement. It seems like he's, he's made a promise that he's supposed to have kept and he... He's kept the proceeds rather than giving it all, but, but there's a bigger issue. He's trying to deceive God. He's effectively breaking unity, not just with the people there, but with God himself. In verse 3, Satan has filled his heart so that he would lie to the Holy Spirit. You know, Peter makes it clear, verse 4, he was under no compulsion. He didn't have to give. But he's got some desperate attempt to keep up appearances, to make it look like he's a follower of God. And so he lies ultimately to God. And the verb used in verse 2 to describe the way he withholds it is is the same one actually used um, in an incident in the Old Testament, in Joshua 7, where uh, a man named Achan, um, after, I suppose, a great victory God had given them in battle, he tries to keep the prophet rather than dedicate it to God. And both stories capture this moment where God's victories are getting sullied by human deception. And Achan gets put to death for his crime and in Acts we see the fate of Ananias and Sapphira. 
as their guilt is exposed, both are struck down dead. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then again, down in verse 11, after Sapphira is buried by her husband, uh, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The mark of a true church is we fear God. Yeah, some in verse 13 are so scared that they don't even want to join the church. But in 5 and 11, it's the believers themselves who are afraid. You know, yes, they, they really delight in the grace of God, but they don't presume on it. You know, Ananias and Sapphira are models of what happens to those who resist grace. Yeah, they keep up appearances, but they resist giving control of their life to the Lord. And it's scary. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The mark of a church impacted by the gospel is fear. Fear of the living and true God. We take, therefore, sin seriously. We take it seriously because ultimately sin is what brings death and suffering. I want to be careful. I don't want to become this kind of overly disciplinary, legalistic kind of church, but... But also to be overly dismissive of sin amongst us is to be unloving in the long run. Because sin does bring God's judgment. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul actually sees the physical sickness in the church there as connected to the fact that they don't take sin seriously. Likewise, in James 5, James encourages you know, that, that for this sick person, uh, they might need to confess some sin. Not all suffering uh, and sickness is because of sin, but, but we mustn't be fooled that, that none is. Yeah, the mark of a true church is we take sin seriously. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck down instantly, but just as tragic is that slow spiritual death of an unrepentant sinner. And we need to remember, yes, God's family is open to any and every sinner, otherwise none of us could come. <laughs> but full fellowship is only open to the repentant sinner. A church in America uh, committed to a, a great uh, building project. They, in conjunction with a, a hospital, a local hospital, uh, they built a healing house. That is, they built a, a house of better care for those who are mentally ill in their community. And they went on. It was so successful, I suppose, they built several more of them. Uh, and it also provided an opportunity for those who are mentally ill to also hear of Jesus. But, but one wealthy man in the congregation refused to give. Uh, he scoffed at the project uh, and his pastor talked about the sadness he had of his final visit to this man in his large house on the hill overlooking the town. Now, this pastor's overwhelming feeling was that this man, in the midst of all his plenty, was actually isolated and lonely. And in clinging to his possessions, he had, in, in, the, in the deepest and most spiritual sense, he had been killed. It might not have been swift like Ananias, but it was just as effective. A man in my Bible study group in the past, um, he had a sin and he knew it was wrong. He had a sin that he refused to deal with, a sin that even though I kept telling him, no, no, you're really welcome at church, meant he actually walked away. Like Ananias and Sapphira, like that wealthy miser, his sin brought his spiritual death. You know, we take sin seriously because ultimately that's where freedom's found, isn't it? Ananias and Sapphira were really gripped by their greed. They were slaves to keep up appearances. 
They were slaves of the hypocrisy. They weren't really free. Once you've grasped that living God's way is actually better, to avoid sin is actually freedom. It's, it's avoiding self-harm. As someone put it, the fear of displeasing God is the gateway to true enjoyment. That is, you don't spend your life regretting missed opportunities to do sin. You know, no one sits on their deathbed pining for you know, time to have it all again because they could have been more selfish and a touch more hypocritical. You know, that's not what we do. It's a great blessing to live a life of fear and trembling before God rather than join those momentary pleasures of sin. You know, to live a life fearing God is liberation. You know, it's why we seek transparent lives at church. Uh, as it was put in, in uh, the East African revivals, we live in a house without ceilings or walls. You know, our fear of God means we want to share our struggles with each other. We might be rebuked and prayed for. And that requires spending enough of our lives together that, that our faults can actually be seen, not just our strengths. I hope you're not off to find a new church. Um, it wasn't the goal of raising the issue of what the marks of a true church are. I hope rather that you're serious about investing in our church, in making our church one that is impacted by the gospel, making sure that we are one and heart and mind, that we are people who fear the Lord our God. Why don't we pray that God would help us? Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you for Jesus who has died and risen and now reigns. Father, we thank you that in him there is forgiveness. We thank you that by your spirit that message keeps going out and we pray that you would impact us, impact us individually and impact us as a community, that we would be united, that we would have one heart and mind and that we would be people who have a true, right and freeing fear of you. In Jesus' name, amen.